good morning again. If you were able to do that, I commend you. That's, uh, that's a tough challenge to meet three people and learn much about them in uh, 30 seconds, but it looks like you did well. My name is Gary, I'm one of, as well as Pat. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and it's uh, my pleasure to get to kick off this series this morning. I don't know if you've thought about it. You did a moment ago because Pat raised it, but I don't know if you've noticed great things do tend to come in threes. Uh, think about it. Neapolitan ice cream. Tricycles. The Bee Gees. Just heard about them, huh? I could go on. Three blind mice. Three-piece suits. Used to be a big hit. Uh, the Three Stooges. Who could forget them? And in honor of Pastor Mike. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. We have to get that one in, right? There, there's something about three. I, as a writer, I've always been intrigued. Good things do tend to come in threes uh, if you pay attention to, to words. But there's something magical and mystery about three. Uh, I was working on this talk a couple weeks ago when the, when the big snowstorm hit. I mean, the real one, right? A couple weeks ago, and uh, we got like eight or ten inches of snow in the middle of the night. We, we heard a crack. And we looked in the morning, and we discovered that the tree next to our bedroom window had fallen, and it broke. But it doesn't just break in half. It broke in three equal parts. So I figure the Lord was trying to tell me something. I'm not sure what, but uh, something about the Trinity just kind of inspired me when that happened. Well, today I want to talk about something else that comes in three, and it's a little harder to digest than trace tacos. So uh, you're going to have to maybe pay some fresh attention today. We're talking about the Trinity, one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think if you've been following the Lord any length of time that, that everybody kind of understands this idea, but the idea of the Trinity is, is really one that uh, is being revisited in our day for lots of reasons, and it is such a profound uh, teaching that it's important that we understand how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all uh, are in this unique relationship, God in three persons. It's phenomenal. The late Chuck Colson uh, wrote this. He said, everyone will acknowledge that the idea of the Trinity, God, three in one, is the most difficult of all Christian doctrines, which is why so often many neglect it or even write it off. Now, I heard a saying in my youth, way back when I was a kid, I knew at a very early age, I felt this prompting or this call of God that I would one day be a pastor. So I paid attention to these kind of things. And there was a saying I heard one time, I never forgot it. It goes like this. It says, try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you'll lose your soul. Happy thought, right? Well, that's not going to happen to you. But the point is, it is, it is a profound and complicated teaching but it's also a beautiful, comforting, and instructive truth. Colson goes on to say, while the Trinity transcends the bounds of human understanding, this doctrine is at the heart of Christian spirituality. Now, I hope you don't miss that. It's right at the heart of what we believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So even though no one can totally plumb the depths of the Trinity, it is one of those mysteries that makes God God, God in his fullness, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is clearly taught throughout the Scripture. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, you could flip to almost any page and put your finger on a page, and you're going to find on those pages an interaction at some level between God the Father and the Son or God the Holy Spirit. Because the concept of the Trinity just simply bleeds through Scripture. 
And the last night when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, one of my favorite uh, sections of scripture, the upper room conversation Jesus has that last night before he goes to the cross, and he revisits all these profound doctrines he's been teaching the disciples. And, and he camps on the idea of the fatherhood, the sonship role that he plays, and the spirit. When he says to his disciples, who are still a little confused, think about it, even after being with Jesus for three years or more, Jesus says to them, to Philip in particular, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He goes on, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So right there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He goes on, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him, the Spirit, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then in verse 27, but the advocate, and by the way, the advocate is the paraclete, the Holy Spirit who walks with us through life and indwells us, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said. So there you have it in just this portion of Scripture. You can find it throughout the Scripture, but there are certain places where it is highlighted in an incredible way. So for the next several weeks, as we talk about the Trinity, and in particular, this morning I'm speaking about the fatherhood of God, and then next week we'll look at Jesus the Son, and, and then Pastor Mike is going to close out talking about the Holy Spirit. I, I want you to uh, understand that uh, you will know the Spirit of God and the Son of God and the fatherhood of God better, we hope, after these weeks together. But I do want to begin with a reminder, and I think this is important as you walk through your spiritual life, is that certain doctrines ebb and flow with time. And all I mean by that is there's a different emphasis on different syllables, you know, at different times. As you, as you live in different generations, different issues come under attack or they're questioned or they're raised. And so, for example, when I was growing up, I heard a ton of teaching on Jesus Christ. And I'm certainly grateful for that because... Christology or the study of Christ is at the center of the Bible. If you don't understand who Jesus is, everything else will be out of whack. So I get that. But then in talking to others this week, I found some said, wow, you know, I grew up in the church I went to, the whole focus was the Holy Spirit. And other people uh, I've talked to this week said, you know, uh, I never heard much about the fatherhood of God. And that's kind of a new one to me because that throughout history has so often been the focal point. And so this morning, I want to look at some truths about the fatherhood of God. I want to try to put it in a little more personal terms today, since I think fatherhood is a concept and parenthood, if you will, that we can all relate to so well. But I want to begin by saying just a little bit more about the Trinity and how this affects the conversation over the next few weeks. So here's the first truth, if you're filling in the blanks. God dwells in community. And I put it this way, a little different spelling, because I want you to see that the whole idea of community for God has to do with the unity. And so when we talk about the Trinity, we're not talking about three different gods. We're talking about three distinct persons that share one essence, that, are the, that comprise the fatherhood, the sonship, and the Holy Spirit. And here's what's key about this. We see that God himself exists in community. You'll see why that's so important in just a minute. In Genesis chapter 1, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible, early on you read this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And there you have this concept of one God existing in community. 
And within this unity, they have fellowship. And he goes on. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Did you catch that? In the image of God, male and female, he created them. As I was reflecting on that this week, I thought it's interesting in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the mystery of marriage. And one of the amazing truths about marriage as it's described in the Bible is, and having performed many marriage ceremonies, is at one point you talk about the fact that God takes two people and they become one flesh. And, and Paul talks about this as a mystery. And I, I think part of what he's getting at is there is this unique design whereby God and, and marriage fuses together these two personalities. They remain distinct, but they share, in essence, one vision and goal in life. And in a similar way, not a perfect description, but I think you see in marriage this idea of community as well. And I'll say more about that in just a bit. But the fact that God dwells in community it ought to remind us that he didn't create humanity out of some personal deficiency. In other words, God wasn't up there in heaven going, I'm so lonely, oh, I could create people. No, that's not how it worked. Now, God did create us, but we're not the result of some void in God's personality or some lack, but rather because of God's love, there is an overflow that resulted in humanity. And this means that you and me and everybody else who ever exists or existed is the expression of the overflow of God's love. For God so loved the world. And so we see that fleshed out here. And then C.S. Lewis, the great writer who we quote a lot around here, C.S. Lewis said, uh, and he talked a lot about different kinds of love, but in particular, in one instance, he talks about gifts love and need loved. And when he talks about this, he says need love is love that gives to get. This would not be uncommon uh, for human personality. There's a Greek word for this kind of love. It's phileo love. It's brotherly love. It's a love that says, well, well I'll, I've got your back and you've got mine. You know, it's sort of a, a healthy way to give and take and be in community That's in that sense. But, but there's another sense in which here he's talking about the fact that some people give out of need or their overflow of whatever they express is out of a personal need. But he said, God, God's love is not like that. God's love doesn't come out of need. It's a gift. It's an overflow of who he is. And this becomes profoundly important because, to me, it again manifests what happens in a healthy uh, marriage relationship between a man and a woman and that overflow of the love that comes from that and often uh, results in children. And many parents, of course, are, are anxious to have children. And, and hopefully, when you have children, it's not because there's a need that you have that you think they're going to meet. But it's actually that creative expression that again takes us back to Genesis 1, how God lavishes love. It's just the creativity and overflow of who he is. Uh, this, by the way, is why we emphasize life groups around here. Because people uh, in a life group have somebody there that cares for them, that lets them know they're wa not walking through this life alone. So it's reflected in the Trinity, but I want to talk this morning more specifically about the fatherhood of God. And I want to try to make this personal by talking it through the lens of someone that is a father and maybe somehow making this concept a little bit more understanding or this understanding of God. So if you're filling in the blank, the second truth is this. Trust in the Father helps set our direction in life. When we trust God, 
it gives us a clarity of vision that we would not otherwise be able to achieve. One of the first verses I think children learn and memorize is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And perhaps you could read this along with me this morning. So together, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Now, that kind of boils everything down to an essence, but I want you to see that it begins with trust. Everything we're talking about this morning, about the fatherhood of God, trust is central because it's not only central to our spiritual development, trust is essential to human development. Trust, when it's violated, distorts a person's view of pretty much everything. If you've dealt at all with broken people, or maybe even at times looked at your own brokenness and are able to step back and, and somehow through the help of a counselor or whatever, see how the brokenness has driven certain beliefs you have, you understand that, that all of us at times go off the rails because we have a misunderstanding or the trust at some level has been broken. Now, over the years, uh, I have counseled many people on a lot of different things, but oftentimes people will come and they have, a, they have a question about God. And usually when they show up on my doorstep at that point, they've come and there's some crisis in their life. There's some physical challenge or maybe the loss of a loved one. And these are, these are painful things, so I don't want to minimize them anyway. But a lot of the questions that come are rooted in some form of disappointment with God. Questions are like this. Where is God when it hurts? And I'm going through all this painful stuff and, and God seems far removed from me. Or why is it that God allows bad things to happen to me or to keep happening to me? Or if God is all-powerful, this is a larger question, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow evil in the world? And by the way, evil is one of the core questions of our day, the origin of evil as the world wrestles with it. And those of us with a Christian worldview have a different take on the origin of evil than people that don't believe in God or don't understand the truth of Scripture. These are all legitimate questions that come out of our brokenness, but I want to remind you, as you go through the Bible, the Bible again and again is very realistic about the fact that we live in a broken and a fallen world and that every one of us at some point are going to walk through painful experiences. Some of you may be in the middle of something very difficult right now, so I hope I can encourage you as you, as you think through again your trust in God, the Father, because trust is the remedy for this kind of disappointment. It's the currency of any relationship, but certainly our relationship with God. And so trust is foundational. But in order to trust God, it requires a step of what the Bible calls faith. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, 6, it says this. And without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him, watch it, must believe that he exists. You see, that's a starting point. You see the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. People either accept that or they reject that, and everything else is extrapolated from that belief. There is a God or there isn't a God. So to walk by faith and believe that he exists means, by definition, you're not walking by sight. So you say, well, that's a problem. How do I walk by faith and not by sight? Well, the good news is God revealed himself to us in two unique ways. One, the most profound one, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus walked on this earth. We'll hear more about him next week, so I don't want to get too much into the sonship. But, but the fact is we saw through Jesus what God is truly like. And then, of course, the special revelation we call the Bible. This is how we know uniquely 
not that there's just some bigger being, but there is a personal God that cares for us. It's still a faith step. A.W. Tozer, an amazing pastor of the last century, said this, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. I think he's right on. If we don't have a clear lens about God, you know, if you, if you have a, a misty optic, you can't be optimistic, you know. If you don't understand who God is and what he's like, it's very difficult for you to relate to God in a healthy way. And so what Tozer is saying is our belief or unbelief is either going to result in a reaction or some kind of action. If you see God as an angry, crotchety father figure that's somehow out to get you, you will have a hard time relating to him. And I know some people grew up in situations where maybe their father didn't manifest uh, the kind of fatherly love I'm talking about this morning, and, and your picture of fatherhood is not a very good one today. But others of us see fatherhood in a more positive light, and, and, and we see the concern, and, and, and when you see God in a loving light, you see him very differently than if your experience has been totally painful. So take a look at this famous image, and the question is, what do you see, a young lady or an old hag? Now, when I said old hag, I was quickly corrected. I can't say old hag, but I can't say old ladies either. So take a look at this image, and what do you see first? Do you see the young lady, or do you see this older person? You see, we all have a perspective at life, and we tend to see one thing or the other. So when I talk to people, and I've had this conversation many times, when I talk to people, I go, I don't believe in God. I ask them, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And by the time they're finished, I end up saying, well, I don't believe in that God either. It's a great way to have a conversation with people. And there are others who say, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he seems cruel and capricious at times, whereas the Jesus of the New Testament is so kind and loving. These are two different gods. No, they're not. It's a theological concept called progressive revelation. Over time, God reveals more and more of himself to us. This is why Jesus becomes the fulcrum, the center of what we believe, because in the person of Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God manifested. This is why Christmas is so important. This is why the incarnation is so important. Because Jesus took on flesh and blood, and, and, and we can relate to him as flesh and blood. My friend Jenny, I was talking to her this week, and we were talking about this whole idea, and she said, you know, interesting thing. She said, when I was very young, when I was a kid, uh, I, I remember walking into my backyard, and I heard my father talking to someone. So I was curious who he was talking to, because being a very social person, she thought, I'll get to meet somebody else. I'll meet a new friend. And she's that kind of person. And so she turned the corner and ran to the back of the house, and, and, and she was disappointed and immediately confused when she saw her father standing alone. And uh, she asked him what he was doing, who he was talking to, and he said he was praying and talking to the Father. And she didn't understand what he meant, so, because he was there alone, so she ran back into the house and said to her mother, Mom, why does Dad get to keep his imaginary friend named Father and I have to give mine up? <laughs> I thought, pretty good insight. Out of the mouth of babes, you know. They see things we often don't see. So Jesus is God in the flesh, God in a bod, and we can relate to him because we all need a personal God. There's a third truth, and it's this. We all worship a Waldo-like God. Now, I'm not suggesting that God wears a red and white striped sweater and a matching beanie, for those of you that know who Waldo is, or if you're from Australia, Wally. But I'll get to that in just a moment. When I talk about these Waldo-like dimensions of God, I, I mean the fact that, that God is present and active, but we don't always 
see him in our daily life. So I have a friend by the name of Terry. He lives in, in the Twin Cities, Minnesota. And, uh, and some time ago, he was struggling with the fact that he, he's this godly guy, professional songwriter, doing other things in the creative arts, and, but a lover of Jesus. And, and he was struggling, though, in his nice suburban lifestyle to say, I'm not sure I see God. My life is so comfortable and everything is, you know, going relatively well. And, but I, want, I really want to have this closer relationship to God. I want, I want to experience God in a, in a fresh way. And so he decided that he would pray a simple prayer every day. Every day for 30 days. No hidden agenda, no list, not asking anything of God other than this. Every day he would begin his day and he would simply pray three words. Interesting challenge you might consider. Surprise me, God. And I won't give away all that happens because uh, he ultimately recorded this in the book. But every day he would write in his journal and record what he experienced about God on a given day. Now here's kind of the big picture. On some days, God sightings occurred everywhere he looked. I mean, God was just evident in conversations, in sort of miraculous things that would seem that went on. And it was great, right? God was so present. In other days, heaven felt like brass. He didn't see God necessarily in that day. Some days were fun and inspiring. Other days were fraught with challenges and unexpected difficulties. Well, what I like about his approach is I find that's how God relates to me or I relate to God. Some days I easily sense his presence. Other days I find it very hard to feel his presence. So the genius of Terry's approach, and, and this is really the key to the whole thing, is, is if we look for God every day, if we actually begin by saying, God, I want to see you today, You'll hear him in conversations if you listen long enough. You'll see him in what's going on in the world around you and in the world at large if you're looking hard enough. Those God moments, those God sightings are there. Some days it will be a little harder, but I promise you, God is always present and active and there. So let me take you back to the Waldo story. If you're not familiar with the Where's Waldo books, these are popular books among children. Actually, a, a British illustrator named Martin Hanford, he got all caught up in drawing crowd scenes. And this got more interesting because he added a, a funny little character dressed in red and white stripes and a beanie named Waldo. And if you've ever seen these books, they're really fun to look at because on some pages, in the midst of a crowd, Waldo is very present and obvious. There he is, Waldo. In other cases, you have to look long and hard to find Waldo because he's uh, smaller in that, on that particular page. And that's how God works in us, that some days he seems so visible and approachable, and other days, as a father, he seems so far removed from us. Uh, John Ortberg, who is an author, has a fasc fascinating insight about Waldo. He says this. He says, part of what makes Waldo so hard to find is that he's so ordinary-looking. Now, I'll confess, I watched different kinds of TV shows, but years ago, one I really liked was Touched by an Angel. Remember that show? And what I liked about it is you've got these ordinary people, and they're going through a crisis in life. I mean, that's every great story has a crisis in it, and they're walking through a difficult time, and these people come into their lives, and they have no idea who they are. And, and then, you know, the, the story really gets to that, that turning point, that tipping point. And then all of a sudden, this is the part I like, there's this heavenly glow, oh, this heavenly music. And all of a sudden, Ordinary-looking people reveal themselves, and they're angels. Hi, I'm an angel, you know? And, uh, and, and they were missed the whole time. In that moment, God's presence became palpable, but up till then, they didn't see these angels as angels for the simple reason they weren't looking for angels. 
Now, I'm not suggesting you're going to walk out of here and see an angel today, but all I'm saying is God is present and active in our lives in ways that we maybe don't expect and perhaps don't see because we're not looking. Orper goes on, and I love the way he puts this. He says, you have to believe that God has a good reason for keeping his presence subtle. It allows creatures as small and frail as humans the capacity for choice that we would never have in the obvious presence of an infinite power. He goes on. People behind a police car don't speed, not always because their hearts are right, but because they don't want to get pulled over. God wants to be known, but not in a way that overwhelms us, that takes away the possibility of love freely chosen. This is what's so incredible about this particular description of God. You see, God loves us, but God is not totalitarian. God is not coercive. God will not break into your lives in harmful ways that force you to choose him. God will often be subtle, not always, but most often be subtle in his relationship to us. There's a fourth truth, though, and this is where I think it gets a little more personal for me, is to think through the lens and filter of a father myself, is that God is a father who longs to see us grow. I mean, that's a huge part of why you're here this morning, right? Because you want to grow in your spiritual development. So there's a safe claim you can make about loving parents. Parents who love their children, which obviously is the vast majority of parents, will do anything in their power to help their kids succeed. And we were the same way as parents. When our daughter was young and coming up, uh, we wanted to inculcate the value of reading in her life. Well, how do you do that? Uh, When kids are in school, they got so much homework, they don't want to read another book, but you want them to have a love for reading. And so we came up with a brilliant idea. I think it was brilliant because it worked. We said, honey, we'll pay you one penny for every page you read. Now, you got to read the whole book, and at the end, come back to us with the title of the book and the name of the author and how many pages you read, and we will pay you a penny a page. It was then that we learned that she had a natural gift for accounting. <laughs> Just a few weeks after issuing that challenge, she showed up with the journal, with the book title, and the author, and, uh, and 100 pages for a dollar. That's the way it, it worked. And, and so uh, since then, that continued, and then she would sort of go for s- several months and then come back, and we would owe her a lot of money all at one time because she had this accurate count. She has a little journal that she wrote it in. And, and today, it was funny, this week, and I think she's in here somewhere, so I don't mean to embarrass her, but she posted the photo, and, and she's sitting in a, a coffee shop, and she's reading a book, and she's got a pen in hand, and the hashtag is, she reads. <laughs> and that just brought joy to my heart, to see that uh, that really took root in her life. Well, you see, God is no exception. He, he, he wants to do things in our life that help us grow, whatever that takes, like a loving parent would do. And this is illustrated in an interesting way in the New Testament. When you get to the book of James, there is the word tempt, that uh, God will not tempt a person, but the evil one will tempt. That little word, you can only translate it depending on the context. And so the way it works is this, that when the evil one, when the devil, and you know, when we talk about the devil or Satan, we're talking about an angel, an archangel, that the Bible says fell in historic past, with some other angels, and so they're a powerful force in the world. They are real. I believe they're real. And at the same time, we can do things that, uh, in our fallen nature, our sinfulness, that that can cause us to be tempted and, and go beyond in the wrong direction. But here's what I want you to see. 
it says when we are tempted by the devil, the way the word is translated is, is we are tempted with a view toward our failure. Always. So when the evil one tempts us, the view is you're going to fail. And by the way, he'll often recall that to people that have walked that pathway, right? Again and again, you're a failure, you're a failure, you're a failure. That's a big message in a lot of people's lives. That same word, when it's used of God, the word test is always translated with a view towards success. So Satan tempts us for failure, but God tests us with a view toward our success. And I think Paul says this beautifully in one of his prayers in Ephesians 3. For this reason, now think about God and his desires for you when I say this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Notice, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from the fatherhood of God. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you'll be rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the fullness of the measure of God. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but do you notice the words in there? God wants to fill us, bless us, that we would be grounded, that we would see the depths of his love. That's the kind of father we're talking about here this morning. Here's the challenge, though. God wants the best for us. He loves us. He has hopes for us. But we can deviate from that. You probably noticed this in your own life, right? The Bible has several different words for the word sin, that three-letter word sin. The word sin predominantly means to fall short. But it can be translated as deviate, to wander. In other words, to go astray in some sense. And this happens whenever we try to operate on our strength rather than God's. We wander. That's why all of us, as we come into this world, we find ourselves affected and infected by the power of sin or disobedience, if you will, toward the possibility and the reality of God. But, but here's the good news. The good news is God in his grace has made a way for us. He's made a way for us out of this lifestyle. And I love a story that Pastor Rick Warren tells. He says, uh, a man came to see him one time and he, he came to his office. He said, what do I need to do to get into heaven? And uh, Warren's response shocked him. He said, you're too late. And the guy wasn't expecting that answer. So he said, what do you mean it's too late? To which Warren replied, what needed to be done was done for you 2,000 years ago by Jesus. All you need to do is accept what he's already done for you. There's nothing to add to it. It's grace plus nothing. He's right. That's the essence of the Christian message, that Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. But here's the thing. There's no way to enter into a trust relationship with God apart from an acknowledgement of our need for God in our life. Until we're willing to admit and acknowledge, you know what, I've gone astray. I have these failures in my life. I've rebelled against God. All of us have done this many times. Until we have a full recognition of that and pray and ask God through Jesus Christ to come into our life and to do what only Jesus can do is to bear the burden of that penalty. You can't earn it. You can't do enough good things to win God's favor. It's all been done. But you do have to humble yourself and ask for God's help. The final truth is this. The father love expresses itself in many different ways. 
Now, we've looked at different characteristics of God, but one of the questions that always comes up is, if there is this inner relationship within God of all of these different attributes and qualities, if God is an integrated, unified personality who's harmonious in all that he is, are any of his attributes seemingly, at least, in some tension? And I think part of the problem here results from looking at God in a clinical way. If you see God, if you put him out at arm's length and try to do this sort of cold calculation and you look at God, you're going to, you're going to see him in one of two ways predominantly. Either you're going to see God as one great big glob of love. And, and I hear this a lot today. God is love and love is God. Well, that doesn't go far enough, actually. In this kind of love, there are no boundaries or no checkpoints. It's like a 24-hour cable news cycle. God is all love all the time. And while it's true in his essence, God's love is always present and active and real, if you put it in a parenting context for a moment, think about it. I can tell you, and all of you could get up here and speak to this if you're parents, that your love for your children is so deep until you become a parent, you can never possibly understand the depth of that love and how you would go to any lengths for your children. That's the way God is. God is love in that respect. And then there are those who camp on the other side. Well, God is, I'm going to get you, God, is sort of this finger-wagging God that Pastor Neely talked about, who some people, when they fall into this trap, they look at other people and they have this perspective that anybody that has a, is having a good time, is having fun somewhere, uh, God is going to judge them. Well, that's not the way I think of fatherhood. You see, God tempers his qualities as the father. And in the midst of my love as a parent, there is still the reality that I have a different job description than being a friend to our child. I love my daughter, but I'm not her best friend. I'm her father. That comes with a different job description. And part of that job description is that there need to be boundaries set. Now, there's no question. Love is the most powerful force in the world, and love is the reality of who God is. But as parents, and looking at God through the lens of fatherhood, there has to be a perspective that sometimes that love can look not like love. It's called discipline or correction. And so the writer of the Hebrews says this, When the Lord punishes you, don't make light of it. And when he corrects you, don't be discouraged. Our human fathers corrected us for a short time, and they do what they think is best. But God corrects us for our own good because he wants us to be holy as he is. It's never fun to be corrected. In fact, at the time, it's always painful. I'm sure you've discovered that. It's interesting that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he said, when you pray, I want you to think of your father this way. And, and he gives them an Aramaic word. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And he starts with this most intimate word, dada. Pray like this, dada in heaven. And uh, that reminded me when, when uh, our daughter was born, the first words she ever spoke or uttered were the words dada. And I later found out my wife taught her those words, so I would get up in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I did. Oh, usually she did, actually. But some of you, you, you get what I'm go going at here, that correction can feel very painful. I don't post much on Facebook, but I stalk all of you. 
I jump on Facebook and see what's going on in people's lives, and usually I kind of get past the food ones, but uh, the pictures. But, but a lot of times I'll come across stories of people going through challenges. You can jump online and you'll see this all the time. It's very interesting to me. Even this week I was looking at some friends of mine who right now are going through a really difficult time, and it's interesting how they say, you know, we're facing this super tough time in our life, but God is faithful. We trust God in the midst of this. You see, here's what it all boils down to. When you're experiencing correction from God or when God brings hard things into your life because he's growing you in a fresh way, you can choose to either accept or reject his correction. And I believe that will be based on the simple word trust. If you doubt God's goodness or his power or his plan, you'll find yourself doubting his love when difficulties come into your life. Now, we all have doubts. I'm not minimizing that. That's totally legit. All I'm saying is, in the final analysis, if you lean hard into your trust in God, you will see that he loves you, he cares for you, and he wants you to be on that faith journey with him. And because he is a good, good father, whatever he's working in your life will ultimately reveal itself in a way we may see on earth and we may not see till we get to heaven. But it's the truth about who God is. There was a famous uh, British preacher of the last century, really the 1800s, that longer ago, that I really admire, named Charles Spurgeon. And he was an amazing communicator, started preaching in London at age 21, and by the time he died at age 57, he preached to 6,000 people a week back in the day with no PA systems or any of that. Amazing communicator. Really still plays well today. He said this, and I, and I hope you can walk away with this reminder and this motto perhaps to live by. He said this, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I think that gets at the core of it all. So today we start with the Trinity, and next week we'll look at the Son, and then we'll wrap up with the Holy Spirit as Pastor Mike brings that message. So I hope you see the beauty of the Trinity. And as you join us from week to week, as you continue to grow in your understanding of this complex but magnificent reality that we worship one God in three persons, and it will have a profound impact on your life. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for the incredible story of who you are as a father. And as we go through the pages of Scripture, we see that, that you're a God who loves and cares, and even for those that reject you. In the New Testament, we read that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike because that's the kind of God you are. You're a good God. It's your common grace to all people. But Father, we thank you most of all for paving a way back to you through the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, we just love what we see in Jesus because it tells us exactly what you're like. So, Father, thank you for this time this morning. I pray that all of us are enriched in our understanding about your fatherhood, your love, your grace, the fact that you go to any length in order to cause us to grow in ways that are healthy and whole and that reflect your glory in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.